Hello, I hope everyone is well and keeping busy, but more importantly, safe during this difficult time. Today, we have a real treat for you. Today's episode is sponsored by my good friend and teammate, GJ Van Velde, and his business partner, Graham Smith's Superior Leather Boot Company. I can personally vouch for Van Velde and Smith's boots as I was a willing buyer of a pair a couple of years ago, and they are still in amazing condition with no drop-off in quality. They have provided me with comfort and warmth for many occasions. The Van Velden Smith motto of we make the boots, you make the memories is fitting of a boot that can provide a smart casual look but easily extend to a dressed and press feel. The well-renowned Smith family name for high quality craftsmanship combined with GJ's interest and passion for high quality footwear was sparked and the perfect business combination was born. It has fast become, if I can say so myself, a must wear for all those who enjoy high quality boots and other leather accessories. If you want more info on VVS and their journey, please follow on Instagram at Vanvelza and Smith. More so, if you fancy a peek at what they have to offer, head to their website on www.vvsleather.co.uk. More exciting news to follow mid-episode, so listen carefully, you're in for a treat. Okay, so today I'm delighted to welcome the man, the myth, the legend, Donico O'Callaghan to episode four of Wind Your Neckin. Thanks, Nile. Uh, delighted to be on. Uh, delighted to catch up. I know I haven't been as good for keeping up with a few of you, but uh, that's what happens when you've left your wife for three years with four screaming kids. I've had to wind my own neck in. No, you've, you've got enough on your plate, and we understand that. But um, we normally at this stage do like a pretty quick intro, but I'll be honest, there's absolutely no chance we're going to be doing a quick intro for your career. So we're just going to crack on and see. Uh, I'll give you some context before we start the conversations. All right, mate? Uh, brilliant. I, I normally go with soon-to-be panto star. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that that's coming at the end. Don't worry. We're still waiting on that. So first up, let's just start right back in the day. Now, you're going to have to wind your memory back. Growing, growing up in Cork, playing for Highfield Rugby Club, and you went on to win a Schools Cup with CBC, uh, which is Christian Brothers College Cork, uh, in 97-98. Now, obviously, you've gone on to have a huge rugby career off the back of that. How important do you think those early days were, and, and how much did you enjoy them? I, I My underage rugby, certainly in Highfield, I loved, and I think it's such an important thing for kind of coaches and uh, people involved, especially with young kids, to realise in in underage in Highfield, it wasn't about structures or you know even it wasn't even about skills. It was all about having fun. That it just the main thing was just get in, get involved. Everyone played, everyone had a great time with brilliant coaches. Uh, Ted Stack, I remember my first underage coach, and everyone played. Everyone got to touch the ball before tries. Even though Martin Hennessy wasn't all that good, we used to tip <laughs> off. But then. I just had brilliant coaches that just made me love the game. And I think if you if you concentrate on having kids love the sport, as opposed to being brilliant at it at that point, they'll always stick with it. Because I wasn't really good at youth level at all. So I just just had fun and that was so important. But And then it gets serious, you know better than anyone, as you go on and you go into schools. Uh, Christians was incredible for me because... I was just around like-minded young fellas who also loved the game. So, you know, in, in primary school, I might have chatted about the Super 10s game that was on that Sunday, Saturday morning and none of my classmates would have seen that. Whereas yeah. in, in Christians, they were all trying to make those moves happen during yeah. school breaks and stuff. So so CBC, for anyone who doesn't know, is one, is probably one of the biggest rugby school rugby playing schools in, the, well, the Munster province or for sure the Cork area. And their big rivals are PBC. Um, now I've met a few boys from PBC through the years, and I've, I know plenty of boys from CBC. At that time, that that age, it feels like life or death when you're playing that sort of game, doesn't it? 
Oh yeah, it's massive. I, I have a memory. We luckily be uh, prez. And the funny thing is, now they're all your mates. They're all your yeah. friends. You know, they're the guys you hang around. So in my team, it's like Peter Stringer, Ron Nogara, um, the likes of Mick O'Driscoll, who you would have soldiered with forever. But at school's mm. level, uh, it's just beyond it. And they're the greatest rivals you'd ever come across. But we beat PBC to go in to play, say, Munchens in the final. And they had Flannery and they had Jeremy Staunton, who was incredible. Yeah. But I'll never forget, uh, we went 16 points up in the final, 16 nil up, and it turned into the Jeremy Staunton show. And to be fair, <laughs> pitched in as well. But they went 20-16 up from nil. like So we were rattled and we were walking behind the post. And I'll never forget walking behind the post, seeing Mick O'Driscoll, Peter Stringer, all the rest of the Prez lads going, yes! <laughs> Absolutely loving it. Delighted. So uh, thankfully, thankfully, we found a bit to, to, to get a win. But... I look back at all the moments of my career, and if you ask me the most nervous I've ever been for anything in my life, it's the school's cup final. Yeah. I just, like you play on Lions tours, but there's something about representing your school and representing where you're from and the people you see every day that just, I, I have a photo of it at home and I actually don't like looking at it because it looks like I'm on death row, you know? <laughs> I think it's your age as well. You don't know quite how to manage those nerves and stuff. You learn as you go on. I'm saying that now. I get more nervous yeah. for games now than I did ever in my career. But as you go on, you kind of learn to manage them a bit better. But when you're a kid, it does, like I said, it feels like life or death. But you mentioned some of the guys that you played against there. And then we moved just really briefly on to, you moved into a, a schoolboys team with some incredible, Incredible players in it, like Sir Brian O'Driscoll and Paddy Wallace. What was it like playing for that Irish team for the first time? Yeah, it was obviously a special <clears throat> honour, uh, to be fair. to yeah, and, and the bit you remember, I know this is probably wrong, but the bit you remember is getting all the gear. Yeah. You, you know, from schools, there's a big stash of gear and you're there, oh my goodness, imagine yeah. wearing this on park, I'm the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, I got mine home and my brothers were like, yeah, I'll have this, I'll have this, I'll have this. I was like, all right, fair enough. I think I was left with a pair of shorts. <laughs> there you go, it's tough, it's tough work. But yeah, you're right, we had some with some uh, really good players. We came up against an English team that were massive, though, the likes of Johnny Wilkinson and Sheridan and a few more of them that were huge men. But, yeah, I think what was good about that was it was a level above. So you you, you can kind of be a, a big fish in a small pool playing in Munster schools, and then you go up to higher schools, and you're there, whoa, there's a whole new level here. And the intensity and tempo was, was brilliant. Uh, so it was, uh, it was good, good coaching and... Uh, yeah, you learn a lot from it. You know what you learn? You learn to step up, you know. Yeah. that. Um, and I think it's so important. It's something we're probably poor at. In, I think we could be poor at it, especially in Ireland anyway. I don't, like, I look at Ollie Lawrence with us, and I, I wonder if he was in New Zealand, would he be given his head, you know? Like, there's a fantastic talent. Sometimes I wonder, do we hold fellas back because we're worried they're maybe a little bit inexperienced as opposed to going... He's a talent, put him in. Sometimes I think there's massive benefit in just putting some younger guys in and letting them just... But it takes what it takes, Donners, in my opinion, is it takes consistent game time for them to find that. You can't just throw a boy in 
let him play one game, watch him probably find his feet and then pull him because he didn't do a good enough job. You know, you've got to give those guys consistent enough game time to to try and find their feet and find the level. And and you've got to surround them with fellas that are going to mind them. You can't, like, yeah. I've been there where you put in on a block of 13 young fellas and, yeah. you know what I mean, it, no one can look out for each other. Like, you put, you know, a young loose head in there with yourself and and Sharky or, you know what I mean, and then that's yeah. a different, then, then he can learn. Whereas um, I, I don't like when, when you see these blocks of putting young fellas in and, and expecting them to thrive when they're just the wrong guys that aren't as experienced as them. I think you have to mind them. Well, I remember 2011, two years out of school, I made my Ulster debut and it was it was literally lambs to the slaughter. We got sent down to the RDS and the squad was basically a Ravens team. And you know that usual Christmas period in and around, yeah. you have those like home and away provincial games and pretty much usually the teams, they rest all the big dogs for one of the games and it turned out it was that Leinster game and we went down to the RDS and faced a full strength Leinster team like O'Driscoll was playing, Healy was playing and I it was like 50 points. And that was my introduction to professional rugby. And just to agree with what you're saying, I mean, I'll be honest, it did me absolutely no favours um, other than getting my first cap and being delighted. You have to introduce these guys with seasoned professionals so they're playing in a competitive environment. Yeah, I remember an, a, a few caps on when you came on against Munster. Actually, I think you started and I came on and uh, there was a bit of a row and you landed two on, on, on the button. <laughs> I still get slapped. The likes of Stephen Ferris and Rory Best that the, our academy umphla nearly banged you out. Well, I don't know. I think I think I must have been trying to swing for the ball or something because I I, w- I don't know. But um, I'll I'll just deny that for as long as I can. I still owe you too, is what I'm telling you. Yeah, you can have them anytime, anytime. So after after that, we move through, and and this is probably where the real the real interest starts for me because you make your monster debut in September 98 and it's against Ulster and you you go on to have I have to get this right Donners it says 268 on the internet did you end up with 268 caps for monster 268 by my own clock I count 273 but there's games that aren't counted that you know the way you kind of respect them but no one else does we played against right. Romney over in a kind of pre-season friendly but it was one of the hardest games I ever played for Munster in my life and nearly got the really? time so I'm there you don't count that fair enough but I count that I do right so we'll go for a 268 <laughs> but actually a 273 um, yeah. which is a, just an astronomical amount of caps and and just briefly before we discuss it like you, you did have huge success with Munster as well you won the European Cup twice um, the league in all its different formats three times and the Celtic Cup once, which I think the Celtic Cup was 0405. That is an incredible amount of caps, a, an amazing amount of silverware. What a successful period for Munster that was. Do you think, do you look back on that with a huge sense of pride? Uh, do you know what? This is this is mad. I, I, I don't. I look back at it with regret. I, I, like, I, know, I know this might sound really poor and ungrateful and wrong, but for the team we had, we should have grabbed more. We should have been... I wish I could go back to kind of 22-year-old, 23-year-old me, give him a slap in the face and go... Because our biggest problem, no, it was we didn't back ourselves. You know what I mean? We didn't We didn't know how good we were. We, like, And I know that sounds cocky, but we, we, you look back now and you're there, geez, that was an unbelievable team. But at the time, we didn't think it. We used to play against teams that were, you know, nowhere near us and, mm. you know, just barely win it out as opposed to if you stuck the chest out and had confidence within each other, like look back at it and think two European Cups for that group of lads is is disappointing. Of course, you remember the special ones, but it's mad. It, like actually winning in 06 was, I know this sounds crazy, but it was just relief. relief. 
like you weren't going oh nice when we won a European Cup you were just going thank god we won't be seen as bottlers you know what I mean yeah. journeymen guys that and, and then you to be fair you could enjoy your weight but just look at the environment we were around the players we had the, the setup and I just I just wish we had been a little bit more selfish I think it's I think it's um that 0506 was a huge relief because of the previous years when you'd come mm. really really close and I remember I remember having watched those games back just like it did look like a mixture of relief and delight but I would say a lot of the times whenever you achieve something really really hard and you achieve something that means so much to you there is an element of relief um that slips in there for me anyway yeah I, I agree, but then you just look at the good people that kind of go before you and and didn't achieve. And I'll never forget, like the likes of Mick Galway, Peter Classy, they actually mm. set values from once the likes of John Langford. Jim Williams was involved in the coach, <coughs> but didn't tug out that day. But the one I'll never forget was I, I remember I was going down the tunnel and I saw Dominic Crotty, who was a brilliant fullback for Munster. And you, you mentioned Christians there. When you walk around Christians, it's like the place is decorated towards the Crotties. Like, they mm. did it all between tennis to debating, everything. The Crotties are all over the walls. They're who you look up to. And Dominic kind of was, a, he was, for me, the, the guy I looked up to on how to be professional because he just, when you'd come to train and he'd been there a half an hour before getting ready, which no one did at that time, you know? Like, it was just rock up and have a game of tip and get into it. Because yeah. he was a good pro before everyone else. But I remember seeing him leaving the pitch on the Millennium Stadium and he was bawling his eyes out. He was genuinely so happy. He was crying. And I remember actually thinking, I don't know what I'd be like that. You know what I mean? I don't know yeah. what I'd be like. And it just actually bangs home how special some people are. You know what I mean? That they can they can think of, I've left a legacy. And, and that was enough for him to see Munster winning. Whereas I'm there, I'm too selfish a fella to be, to be happy for a different group. You know that way. So. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think um going back to someone like him, when when you first came into that environment, like you were you were very young and and I'm interested to know as a young lad, what sort of guys around there influenced you and what was the environment like because you hear stories about like lads you know half, halfway through a session going out for a smoke or you know yeah. proper it's that proper transition from amateur to professional where the lines were a bit blurred you're 100 percent right like i remember actually talking with some of my teammates who were bringing suits in with them so they when they'd finish training they'd go to work and, and stuff like that it was just i know it sounded old school there with stuff like that but i I, I was so lucky to have brilliant people around me. The likes of Deck and Kidney were incredible because I remember Decky would always say to me, like, this isn't the standard. You know what I mean? You have to set the you have to set the standard. And he was there and I was competing with like a monster legend, Mick Galway, one of the yeah. greatest inspirational players Monsters ever produced. And he was there like I'll be honest with you, you're not getting ahead of him, even if it's 80, 20 on rugby. You know what I mean? Like, it has to be, you have to be 100% better than Mick Galway when it comes to rugby because he brings so much to the environment beyond the game that you, you don't. So, like, you need to have a higher level. So, I'll be honest, very early, I started competing with my teammates at my, at my age group, the likes of. You named a few of them, Stringer, Jerry Flannery, Paul O'Connell, Mick O'Driscoll. Shouldn't have started naming guys, no, but... Yeah, I know the group you mean. Yeah, and 
and the, and then the big moment was Ireland went to the World Cup in uh, I think it was ninety nine, and Brian O'Mara and Tom Tierney were the Irish scrum halves that went on on the 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 World Cup trip. But when they came back, Strings was in the team and starting, and they couldn't shift them. Mm. And I remember it was like a light bulb moment for all the rest of us. It was like one of our lads jumped, and it was like, geez, we can jump. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, if, I'm, I'm not being disrespectful to him, but I would say like Stringers in the team. What? <laughs> <laughs> like you're telling me strings can be in the team and I not. So that was a massive moment. He kind of he paved it out for that that group to kind of to jump, you know. Because I think if one of us hadn't, we would have all fluffed around for ages and just wasted time. Absolutely, I think uh, I think you can see that in most successful academies. There's there is a a moment where one player makes that jump and then there is a group that follows. Um and but you need coaches who are willing to put you in. And the coaches at Munster obviously made you work for it. They made you they made you go further than any senior player was expected to go but at the end of the day they have to be willing to put a young player in and and the monster coaches brought through a group that would inevitably bring them huge success how do you reflect on the that that kind of coaching group giving you those opportunities yeah it, it, it was and i've named them it was decky but then no, no, the main thing is you have guys that actually teach you how to conduct yourself. And I'll never forget, um, I just slept school. So I stupidly, I remember I dyed my hair like bleach blonde or even the stroke of silver thinking I was the bomb. It, it, it's stupid things you do. But I remember going into the environment and I was meant, we were meant to play Connacht Day away and uh, then head on to watch the senior game. And I remember um, John Hayes was playing Connacht Day at the, uh, for Munster Day at the time and I remember going into the environment. Oh, actually, Hayes wasn't. He was playing the senior game, but we were sharing the same hotel to get ready. And I remember going in and he said, um, Jerry Holland met me at the door and he was there. What are you doing here? And I was there, um, Declan Kidney. Well, I was like, um, Declan Kidney told me to come along for the match. And he was there. Yeah, I know what you're doing here, but not with that hair. And I was there, sorry. And he was there like, John Hayes is a Clippers upstairs. Go up and shave that off. You're not playing. He just shave your head. Yeah. <laughs> and all I was thinking, I remember at the time, all I was oh thinking was, my. I paid 20 quid to get that done. Like, it, that, that's a <laughs> Can lot I get of my money, money back? But he just, he just told me, like, you just couldn't conduct yourself like that. You couldn't be a bolter. Not, not that they didn't want individuals, but they didn't want someone representing the team in, in a kind of manner that was like that. And, I think that kind of stuff is massively important, you know, and it trips on as you go along within it, you know, that, you know, you just have good people around the environment. We mentioned Declan Kidney. I was lucky I had him since schools, but one of the, probably the biggest influences and probably, um, you know, just passed away a few months ago was Gareth Fitz. And yeah. Gareth, he was always about kind of the team first. And I'd seen that. In, in in school where he'd been really ruthless with some of my um my schoolmates but it was all for the betterment of the team and I think when you create an environment like that then it's easy for coaches like Decky who was brilliant to be fair to him and Niall O'Donovan they were super coaches but they were surrounded with brilliant management like Jerry Holland Gareth Fitzgerald that then make that easy for you to to just set a culture of you know team first absolutely absolutely that's what elite performance looks like and you guys were way ahead of the schedule in terms of doing that but what were some of the what were some of the main highlights as a monster player which ones stick out for you yeah like obviously there i'll be honest yeah i'm going to give you the honest answer like any time we played an english team in Tomond was special and and the one that belts home is we played sale in in, in Tomond park one time and yeah 
Al was was you know leading the blaze in in European rugby, not even in the Prem. And you know he was yeah, for us he was ahead in the stake. And I just remember that moment. Any time he got near the ball, there was you know the way that there's some days there's about sixty climbing over each other to get at him. Yeah, and it's just I think Toman special something about it, especially when there's. English opposition. I, I know it sounds a, a bit harsh, but it's there's something special about it, and uh, I, that's certainly one of the highs for me. Uh, David Wallace got a try at the dead. I'd say 82 minutes for us to to uh, get a bonus point that was vital towards getting uh, qualification. So, and then there's been other games. There's been Gloucester where we needed kind of 26 points to to get through. It's kind of called a miracle game at home, but I don't know was it even that and. You know what I love about that? I just I remember I played in that game and I I hadn't a clue what we needed. And do you know what it banged home? I didn't need to know. You know the people that needed to yeah. know were the likes Anthony Foley and Ron Nogara. And all I had to worry about was doing my job. And I remember just every time they they were really cool and calm about it, and they just kept tipping away at the scoreboard. But sometimes you can get blinded with worrying about everyone else. And instead of just doing your job, brilliant. And that's what I liked about that that game in particular. All I had to worry about was just making sure I was on point and the rest would would steer us home. Yeah, process-driven, not outcome-driven. There's a certain degree of within the team, you've probably got a handful of guys like, you know, your captain and then your 10 and your nine. And, and those guys need to know exactly what, how and what to do to get you the... And then the rest of everybody just... It's the old do-your-job analogy, isn't it? You know, um, and that goes a long way for you guys getting some of those absolutely huge results. I remember um, I actually watched highlights of that sale game when I was prepping for this. And, like, Chabal was abused that day. He got, like... You, if, if if that happened on the street, boys would be going away to jail. Yeah, but do you know what was... He's... His respect went through the roof from us because he never he never stopped taking the fight. Mm. So like still other, kept carrying. Still kept carrying, and we were there. Like every time he carried, we tried to melt him, and then he'd get back on the ball again. And I remember actually being in the dressing room afterwards, and we were chatting about him, and we were like, there was one time Paul O'Connell hit him off a kickoff, and and to be fair, he ran him for about ten, maybe fifteen <laughs> meters. But all Shabal has to do is take a knee, like drop to the ground, and instead mm. he's too proud to hit the deck. And you're there, like you have to admire that as well. That constantly stayed in it. He constantly wanted to fight it out, and. Uh, I think that's what made it a bit of a prize for us. So in terms of uh, the players that you have played against, uh, Shabal, you've obviously just mentioned, but are there any others that stick out as someone that you think, like, that guy That guy is a good player? Or maybe someone that you don't think is as good until you play against them? Because um, I've had experiences like that before. Um, yeah. Recently this year, like we went away to Harlequins and a lot had been said about Don Brandt. And I was I was like, well, he's just a, he's one of these big back back rowers. And, you know, he, yeah. is he is he that good? Is he that good? And then when we played him, I came off the pitch and I was like, he is that good. He's actually yeah. quality. I, we, we we certainly had that with uh, Simon Easterby, who's now involved in the Irish setup. So, like, luckily at the time, we probably had seven out of the eight forwards in the Irish pack were from Munster. And the other one was Simon Easterby. And sometimes... You might even question why he was probably getting the nod ahead of Quinny. And then we'd, we'd play against him with Clinetley, and he was the greatest pain in the arse you'd ever come across. Mm. Locking every breakdown. He was one of these guys now that you didn't know his value uh, until you played against him. I actually think Sammy Lewis is like that with Worcester. He, he, like, you just have no idea the, the work rate that a guy gets through until you probably watch it back or, like, or, or until you play against him. And I remember... 
any time we play against Glen Etley over there, oh my God, how much of a pain there is is Simon Easterby. And and then you realised that you didn't value it when it was unset up. I suppose for me, one of the greatest honours nearly on a pitch to play against someone was Martin Johnson. We got to play uh, Leicester in, in Welford Road one time and he was playing and like he was... Like he was a sporting hero for me growing up, and I know it, it's kind of um, it's one at home when you say it. Everyone thinks Martin Johnson, and they yeah. at the moment move off the red carpet. I kind of I know this sounds unpatriotic and and wrong, but I kind of loved him for it. I loved that he was told go there, he went there, and he stood there, and he wouldn't back down. And mm. uh, and 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 that was him throughout. I used to just uh, like and uh, look. I'm just picking up one of the areas, but I remember I used to just watch his game inside out, and he never took a backward step. His work rate was through the roof. I just kind of role modelled everything on it. I used to get slagged in school because I tried taping my fingers like he used to tape them with the black insulation tape. <laughs> they were like, "Who do you think you are, man?" But I, and then to play against him. Um, that time in Welford Road was uh, was incredible, and I'll never forget. They had us on on the back foot. They just kicked the ball into the corner in Welford Road, and I'll never forget. Just to buy a bit of time, I kicked off my boot, and the ref kind of said, "No, look, he has to be given time to to tie up his boot." And I'll never forget. It just went all black around me. He stood over, and he just looked down at me, and he said, "Hurry up!" And I, I I'll never forget. Like talk about trash talk, and I just went. I'm very sorry. <laughs> and I, I swear yes, I've Mr. Never, Johnson. hundred percent. I've never tied the lace so fast in my life and legged it back into a line. Now, for me, that was just a, a massive one to just play against a hero, you know, like someone that you, yeah. and all I was doing that day was trying to win his respect. I couldn't have cared less if we lost by 50 points or I just wanted him to kind of maybe have a handshake at the end that at least he thought it was half decent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's an incredible story. I think so. The transition from from whenever you're one of those younger guys fighting for the respect of these guys, and then eventually you hit a you hit a point. You you probably won't agree, but it, it's the reality. You hit a point where you become one of those guys. You get you become a guy that young people are trying to earn the respect of, or they're trying to compete with constantly to get that position. Because you were in that position with Monster for you know well over 12, 13 years. So. How did your role change from the very start to the end? Did you but you did you find yourself ending up becoming one of those senior guys that the young guys look up to or try and compete with? And how did you enjoy that? Yeah, I, I it, this is an awful thing to say. I sh- I should have. That's the role you should take. But I was too. This is an awful thing to say. But I was too ruthless. I was too selfish. I I, I wish I'd been better to the guys probably around them to give more of a hand up. But I wasn't kind of taught that way. I remember I used to ask Mick Galway for a rep in training. I'd say, Gollum, can I jump in? And he'd say, yeah, no worries, next one. And then next one, next one. And I'd never get a rep. And I remember actually thinking about it. And he was, I, I had to... I had to rip it off his back, you know, and I think that's probably not a bad way to to go about it. That that's the that's the attitude that you know what I mean. Everyone competes. Hundred percent. I could have been better and more helpful to like I look at the likes of Donna Corrine and Billy Holland and even even Mikko and stuff like that. But I I didn't want to be false either. With you know what I no. mean. They want so, your job though, Donners. That's the reality. The reality is there's only two there's two jo- two people who play that position in a starting team and there's one yeah. on the bench and they want your job. So I can understand that balance between wanting to help and be that very charismatic like senior player but at the same time you know you're not done you want this you want this more than anything so you're not willing to just hand it out for free 
Exactly, and and you've nailed it. They're, they do, they they want your job, and everyone's, you know what I mean. Everyone's competing for the the same the same shirt, and um, you know, like you do want you do want competition because it brings the best out of you. But you you just you don't want to take the foot off the gas. And look, I think it was really important to have world class kind of around me within an environment like Trevor Hogan, guys like this. I'm sorry, I know it's hard to name it, fellas, but you know that if you're not. 100% you're out the door and I'll never forget I remember Tony McGann was leaving me out of the team for a, a, a number of games and I remember I threw the toys out of the pram and I remember Anthony Foley had just started as a defensive coach and he was there whoa I'll I'll stop you Dunners and he was there the best team is going out on Saturday and you're not in it and I remember I remember that I remember it so well because it was the honest truth and I was there mm. whoa he, he's telling the truth you know what I mean and Deep down, I could throw the toys out of their hands and flake around, but it, like the truth was, that I wasn't good enough to get back in the team at that point. So he, um, I, that's what I kind of love that honest feedback, and you know, that's what they're the moments you don't want, and you you kind of gotta keep at bay. So like I wasn't good enough to kind of be giving guys hands up. You know what I mean? I had nearly five plus. I had Paulie as well, who was telling everyone what to do. So I'd say they were quite relieved to have someone that didn't drive them nuts. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's very valid. And a lot of people don't see that. Sometimes I think on reflection, it's easier to be it's easier to be the young guy who's just fighting up than it is sometimes the older guy who has to toe the balance between making sure he's being a decent professional and a no an amazing professional and a good person to the young guys because they are going to be the future of the club but at the same time hold on to your position so the next question really is ties in with that and, and over the 273 we're going with caps do, do you do you ever reflect on what you sacrificed as a as a monster player do you ever think back to you know we'll get to the later stages whenever you go over to Worcester but as a monster player you know the sacrifices I've trained and I've played with you and I know they're huge but have you ever allowed yourself to think about what those sacrifices were no you don't because it, it's mad you, you're, you're right you see the family ones but you're willing to do the rugby ones are quite easy because you're willing to do them you know yeah. like this is a mad thing to say i knew i personally i wasn't talent as talented as the people in my room so i knew in my dressing room so i knew my point of difference would have to be work rate and work ethic and being ahead of the curve the whole time so i was constantly i honestly no i'd look around even with us and muster i'd look around my dressing room and go man Today's the day they found out you shouldn't be in here. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, it, that was kind of, I used to use it as a drive, a, um, a, a bit of a thing for me to to know that I had to kind of give it more. But I, I wouldn't have seen them as sacrifices at the time. They were just things I had to do. And, look, I'll be honest with you, I, I 100% know it now. I was... I was so um, I've no problem. People would say ruthless, but I, I I was there. I was selfish. It was Donica first. Donica the rugby player first, you know. And it's uh, it's mad. Like even yeah, there's there's moments that stand out, and I know we'll chat about kind of later on. But I remember uh, knowing that I'd have to go for fitness sessions at ten o'clock. That I'd have my own breakfast before I'd feed my kids. Like that's. <laughs> that's a bad human being like that does no. things like this so it's uh there is stuff like that but look i think i had to be like that i had to kind of go over myself and beyond myself to to compete and be in the room so moving moving in tandem with that during your time as 
as an ever-present for Munster, you also became a, a huge regular with the Irish rugby team. And in March 2003, you came off the bench against Wales in the Millennium Stadium. In a career with Ireland that lasted 11 years, because actually you made your Ireland A cap the year before, uh, seven Ireland A caps and 94 full Irish caps, and you went to three World Cups and you were part of, in my opinion, starting Ireland's most successful era. When you reflect on that Irish experience, there's a huge chunk of that is down to that Munster core that we just discussed. You named it there. You had seven out of eight, potentially sometimes even more with the bench. That Munster driving force, was that a huge influence on why that Irish team became successful? I, I th- 100% it was in some areas, but I, I, I think what the Munster lads probably bought was... Uh, the bit of drive you know what I mean and I don't think maybe when we went into Irish camps there was that kind of togetherness as as much as it ended up being compared to as it was at the start it was real kind of stick to your province stick to your area whereas in the end like it ended up being way better and if I'm being honest I don't know I don't know was it that I think we knew we talent we knew like you mentioned Drico earlier, but like we'd look, I'd look at Drico in the dressing room and go, he'd be in any dressing room in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we have to offer standards. Like we have to be good enough for this fella to shine. You know what I mean? We get him decent ball and we have a shot here. You know what I mean? And then mm. there was just enough guys like that around the place. Shane Horgan, like even Ron Nogara, David Wallace within the Munster team. I'll be honest, when it came to the Irish fold, we never, you'd never kind of rock up with monster mentality because it's a massive step up and people don't appreciate that you know i know people would say oh geez monster lads can play great for their provinces but it's it's not at international level and as soon as you play international level if you make like you make a mistake at provincial level or club level and someone covers your arse you make it at an international level it's a try just because everything so good. So I think the step up was. I, I I honestly think, and you mentioned it. I think Drico had an awful lot to do with. I think he was kind of sh- shining light for all of us. I played with him in schools. He knew he was a little bit special. Then he he went to Australia on, on that tour. But then that Lions tour where he just lit it up. And then when he came back from that Lions tour, you knew he was probably the best in, in, in definitely in the, the the home nation provinces in Europe. And and you were there. He just threw it down at international level in Australia so this guy is class you know what I mean yeah. and he's in our room so just wanted to kind of probably push the standards and look I, I there was just probably a change in mentality in our sport as well I, I personally believe it was led to by Roy Keane you know that kind of not just happy to take part and be happy to be there for the the day Keno just started this whole new mentality of you know you got to win you got to do something in your time and I think he was a massive influence for an awful lot of us so um but I I, I think Drico and Keno definitely helped us in ways I, I don't know to the Munster lads because all of us were just trying to get in the team yeah, absolutely. I think you, you just touched on it there and I'd be interested to know what was it like going into those Ireland camps in the early days? You've mentioned, you know, maybe wasn't as wholesome and as united as it was towards the end. What was that down to? Was that down to just provinces competing against each other? Was it down to the way the coaches were allowing the team to get together? Or was it just, was it down to competition? Uh, you know, because any any of the 
I'll be honest, any of the... I, I know I only played to an underage level, but the, the underage level, boys seem to get together quite quickly, you know, and it, it maybe just took... I know you're a non-drinker, but it maybe just took a night on the beers or, or a team social, a barbecue. Why at that top elite level kind of insinuated that it maybe wasn't as united as it needed to be in the early days? Yeah, I, I think I think you've nailed it's a bit of all of them, isn't it? it? Like there's loyalty to your friends and but then there's actually knowing that the other player in the other province is actually probably better. You know what I mean? Mm. Or and there's that side of it. And I think it's maybe just it's it's an awful probably Irish trait as well that you don't want the fellow over the ditch doing really well. We kind of we're really good at pulling each other down, you know. So like which it, it 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 doesn't probably happen anywhere else. They kind of help each other out, and like I remember watching um I remember watching an Ospreys game with Simon Easterby, and when Osprey scored, he jumped up and he was genuinely delighted, and that, we were all laughing like we were there. The Ospreys, would you cheer for them? And he was there. <laughs> the Welsh lads are sound, and then we were like, you mad? You know what I mean? <laughs> You watch Leinster, Ulster and Connacht and you want them to win by a point, but you want all of them to play really poorly. And they, <laughs> it's just it's it's a it's a horrible Irish trait. But I, to be fair, I think I, I think more is made of that than probably was the case. You know, I think yeah. uh, like to be fair, I, I, I've massive respect for Rob Kearney because in Enfield, I remember he would. He he just vocalised something that maybe other people in the room were feeling. He 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 questioned that the Munster lads didn't you know play as well as they uh, could or prepare as well or uh, uh, show as much as they care for Ireland. And if the and I, I've said this to him, like it wasn't that wasn't the case, but the level was up a standard, but it was so appreciated by us that he was on enough honest enough to say it as opposed to just think it and not say it. And then you can address it when people are being honest. So yeah. I think, um, you know, like I, as a Munsterman that time, I remember just thinking to myself, if, if, he, if he believes that is true, which I don't, I, I got to show it. You know what I mean? I, I can't say it. I got to lead with my actions and show how much, you know, playing for Ireland means to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that transfer and change obviously led to the Grand Slam in 2009. But before that, there was a couple of triple coins in 2004, 2006, 2007, and then obviously 2009 as well with the Grand Slam. With those moments, would they sit at the top of the tree for those Irish Irish experiences? Or, or are there other ones that maybe more subtly sit there? Yeah. Do you know what? You're, you're right. They're, they're top of the ones you remember. But do you? And you know what, the one that stands out, you mentioned the 2003 getting my first cap for against Wales. And it was just, so my, my dad passed away when I was quite young, when I was six years of age. And I got my first cap on his anniversary wearing jersey number 18. And like, I, it, it meant, it, it, I know it, it, this sounds crazy, but I remember that was a big kind of thing from my mom that I was in jersey number 18 on his 18th anniversary. But the main yeah. thing was, I remember growing up, and that time was always really tough around our family because everyone missed my dad, of course. But it 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 would just be, it would just be a horrible kind of time around our house, and everyone was just a little bit down. Whereas that year, they were all heading over to Cardiff for for my first cap and just seeing how happy they were. And I remember that was always the drive for me then in rugby, just to make them happy, just to have them just having a ball, having a great, great time. And, you know, normally it would be a, a, a sad time, whereas get my first cap that time was just brilliant. And I'll never forget, I remember I ran on the pitch. I swear to God, there was a, I think it was a scrum I ran on. Yeah. And I swear, I nearly ran 10 metres past it. I ran on so, like, it was like, what? Oh, <laughs> so, I remember the commentator said it. 
this one looks like a grave guy to have a point with. I was there. To, I only saw it back like I was there. Little does he know, I never touched a drop in my life. So, <laughs> That's, enthusiasm to get on. Yeah, no, I actually saw that clip now when I was doing the research, and that is the pinnacle for every rugby player, you know, to, to make his debut. And, and obviously, the circumstances made it even more profound. And I suppose on the flip side of that, what what's what are obviously. The main ones and the easy ones will be those World Cups with the quarterfinals. But are there any other moments that stick out in terms of a disappointing the other side of it? You know, the moments when you really thought, you know, we've let ourselves down there or we, we didn't give our best account of ourselves. There's there's certainly one. There's England in Twickenham kind of, oh, geez, I can't remember the year. But I remember Eddie O'Sullivan was under severe pressure. And mm. I remember we just, we I remember our scrum was on rollerblades. We got absolutely ran out the gate. And do you know what's gotten, and you know better than anyone, it, the days you roll over, you know what I mean? The days that you don't fight it out, you don't stick in it, you don't. And and we just rolled over that day and got absolutely hammered. And I, I'm still embarrassed over it. And they're just, do you know what? They're just scars on your career that you'll carry forever and they'll never go away. And, and they, you know what I mean? You just always remember them and they kind of drive you a little bit never to taste that. But you, you're right, the ones that stand out are the, the World Cups and the, the, the World Cup in France. What's still gutting about that is I don't know what we got wrong. You know what I mean? Like, you know the way you, you always get out of something what you put in? Yeah. We put everything into it and we got nothing out of it and it, like it's so hard to even still 100% know you know that we were overcooked we had done everything I remember I like I lived like a monk for six months six months to prepare for that rugby world cup and 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 just to be sitting on the coach kind of two and a half three weeks into it and you're there whoa you know what I mean there just yeah. home you'll, you'll never get back so it's, so uh, what do the what do the two weeks to three weeks to four weeks look like after something like that on earth if in in your world? Oh, they're low. They're low. My like I'll be honest with you. I've been always driven by you know the the success. Everyone's driven by the success to you know taste the the wins again. That's not the the driver for me. I always try to avoid the trough because I would I I would. I would feel so embarrassed. I'd be so ashamed. I'd, mm. I wouldn't want to leave my house. I wouldn't want to bump into people. I remember, I remember when we came back from that World Cup in France. They were there, like just a few people outside, lads. You can go out the side door if you want. And I remember kind of thinking, oh my god, they're actually, they're even suggesting that to us. You know what I mean? And <laughs> playing for your country is a massive, massive honour. And like you actually have a responsibility when you go out to. I, I always felt now about Irish people they they live with you losing but they they won't live with you underperforming or not giving your all and if you yeah. can give your all and you know what I mean you you come up short Irish people will live with it but when you when you don't fire a punch when you don't when you don't crawl off you know they they can't handle that I can't handle it myself and to be fair coming away from that World Cup I, I, I and and those moments I, I just actually felt ashamed and I'd hide out. I remember I'd hide out. I remember I'd be there like, I'm a, a few lads might be going for a coffee. I'm there. He nuts, lads. He nuts. <laughs> Do you know that we just got hammered? So I'm not leaving the house for another two yeah. weeks. <laughs> Man. Um, yeah, no, I think you've summed up what, what my perception of Irish sport is in general. You know, 
there is this just absolute willing to fight and scrap and and give everything and and I do genuinely completely agree with you. I've watched international matches um of all sorts of sports or international, you know, you have even someone like McGregor or or anyone that competes to that level and represents our you know the country is as long as they give everything, the people will get behind them, the people will back them, the people will appreciate what they've done, but there's you know I, I and I don't think you guys give any less than you could. I just think sometimes sport can be really 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 cruel and to flip that on its head the the one the one match in particular and i'm not going to bore you all day asking you about all 94 caps but the one day that sticks out in my head is that day at crook park against england mm. because the build-up to that with the history of playing at crook park because lansdowne was being completely redone you know the history of playing it at at Crook Park with the the Gaelic and the GAA and there was something about that that I don't think people outside of Ireland really understood. There was a lot written about it, but maybe you could give some insight into the, what that week leading up to that looked like, and then maybe discuss the anthems and and how you felt before you played that match. Yeah, um, I uh, so all week, of course, you know when when it was announced that because there was talks we'd be playing in the Millennium Stadium, and to be fair, you were there. Okay, that's that's a cool pitch and. You know, we might get our supporters there, but you kind of, it felt hollow. You know what I mean? It wasn't your home. It wasn't where you're from. And then it was announced that we'd, we'd get to play in Crow Park. And you were like, I, I've never been as motivated to be in a team, to, to t- tug out there. And like, you know better than anyone, it, 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 especially in Cork, you, you, you play rugby for three reasons. It means you're terrible at hurling, you're terrible at football, you're terrible at soccer. And that's why you play rugby, you know. And like Crow Park is, it's like a cathedral for sport. It's where our amateurs perform year in, year out and give unbelievable performances. But you touched on the history of it and, you know, the, what it meant to everyone to open it up. And, and everyone straight away, started focusing on the English game and I, I think maybe we did a little bit too and we kind of underperformed against France like that could have been a, a, a grand slam year if we had got ourselves right and got ready for it but um, Crow Park I remember Drico all week was there you know it's just another big game lads it's just another massive game in our career and it, it was brilliant all week again that message across we need to perform because this is another massive game in our career and he was kind of putting context on it you know it was big but it wasn't and and, and part of us kind of knew he was spoofing if you know do you what reckon I mean? he was trying to look after you as, as a captain he was trying to almost create an environment where you didn't appreciate how big it was yeah, I, I, I think he knew, and he, I, I think he knew emotion would go crazy if we got into that early. And to be fair, he, he just managed it so well because I remember his parting shot before we walked out of the dressing room was, if you think this is another another big game, lads, you're, and I won't say what he said, but you're wrong, you know. And I, I, I was so glad he nearly cleared it before we walked out the door and that he managed it all week because... I'll be honest, you could go beyond it. Like it was a game that if you're not into rugby, you, you like that was that was a history defining game in terms of our country. And I think it was where we showed a maturity. You know what I mean? I, I, as a nation, we showed, you know, like there's been differences between our country, but, you know, we'll never forget where we're from and what we're about. But, you know, right now we're willing to kind of accept and uh, and move on and and, and you know know that important things to life that we can never forget but this is important that we represent ourselves and show what we're about and I 
I'll never forget uh, just the atmosphere around us. You know, like all week there would be talk, would there be protests? Would you? There was nothing, and uh, you touched on it for the anthems. Um, I, I, it's a, this is a crazy thing to say, but I'll never forget the English anthem, "God Save the Queen," because you couldn't hear a pin drop. I, I could actually hear, I could hear Martin Corrie. I remember hearing his voice in like I was there. There's eighty-two thousand people here. And that's Martin Corry. I can hear him croaking away there, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, because that was the first time that the God Save the Queen had ever been sung at Croke Park. And whenever I went back to watch it, I actually got goosebumps watching it because the the crowd and the whole the whole stadium respected that unbelievably. It would have been easy to get a few twats who maybe would have disrespected that. But the actual, the whole um, emotional atmosphere there was in the perfect context. Yeah, and I think that's what we're on about. I think we showed a maturity as a nation to be respectful. And you know what I mean? We Like, of course, it was to show the respect, but then it was up to us to hop lumps out of them afterwards. But yeah. I think we need to show that we, you know, that we've moved on and, and you know, that it was a special, special time. But then I remember I, I, I used to, like Rala, the Irish bagman, I spend an awful lot of time with Rala and hanging around with him. And Rala is so grateful to the English team that came, I think it is, in 1963 or 67. Mm. Like, Wales wouldn't travel, Scotland wouldn't travel, but England came and Ireland won. And I remember Rala saying that, you know, if, if England didn't come at that time, he would never have seen international rugby. He was a young boy in Tarnior and... You know, he was into rugby and England turned up and showed up. And I'll never forget Phil Vickery's speech afterwards, just how grateful and appreciative to the occasion he was as well and how respectful he was to it all. So, look, I'll be honest, you look back at moments like that and I swear that was that was beyond sport. You know what I mean? And to actually, I think there people will remember that forever. And to have the bird's eye view of being on the pitch was was special. And... I remember Boxy got a try, um, you know, to pull us away. Isaac Boss scored. Yeah. I remember we were all in a rush to get back and, and, and score more because it was Crow Park and it deserved a hammering. If you know what I mean, it deserved yeah. a proper scalp, which was a great way to to be about it. And uh, look, there's you, you mentioned highlights. There's one that you would always be grateful that you were on there and that you got to play. Absolutely, it was. It's almost like you have my notes here, Donors, which you don't. But the next, the next topic <laughs> is, is Rala himself. You know, some, no, know. some a bigger than life character within the Irish setup, the Irish bagman for for years and years and years. And you know him way better than I do. But I had one encounter with him whenever uh, Ireland came up to Belfast to train, and he's trained out of Jordanstown. And basically, I was like a young kid in the academy at the time, and Gary. Longwell said to me, "Right, Niall, you're gonna you're gonna go and you're just gonna give Rala a hand for the day." And I was like, "Oh, oh, what am I gonna what am I gonna be doing? I'm gonna be with around all the lads all day, absolutely bricking it." And that man looked after me better than he could have. Honestly, uh, he yeah. looked after me. He 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 was the absolute. He was part of the part of the lads, wasn't he? You know, you get these bag men who just they're always the focal point of a team. But Rala used to have the lads up to his to his room for sweets when you were collecting your kit and stuff. Is there any yeah. stories yeah. that stick out with Rala? Oh, there was, there's a few of them. There's loads of them. Like you've been very nice to him compared to most people, and I'm glad he looked out for you. But like we used to tag <laughs> we used to call him the slug because he moved as slow as a snail. But he carried nothing, so like for a bag man, he, like the slug was a good nickname for him. But yeah. you're right. He all all Rana did was create an environment that, like, it was honestly, it was like calling to your 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 granddad's house, or you know what I mean. Just 
yeah. he was like like that stories he'd tell us like he nearly passed on history and you'd go there for different things but Rala's room was like Switzerland it was safe you know what I mean so if a coach yeah. came in and say myself and Tommy Bo or whoever it is myself Trimby or any of the lads are having a cup of tea and say someone like Les Kiss or Declan Kidney came in and they were like oh um Trimby I'd like to chat to you about and you were like what the Hey, come off it, man. We're in <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, why would you disrespect Rala by chatting ball in here, you know? So it yeah. was, uh, but you're right. I think you need characters like that around it. And I actually feel sorry for the next generation of lads that are going in because they'll never get to experience kind of Rala's room, especially the night before a match. Because, look, it's amazing. He came on uh, Lions tours as well, and you could see even the Welsh and Scottish and and English lads respected what he did. It, it, it's an environment. He just created an environment where you felt safe. And when you're touring or when you're away from home, it's nice to have some place like that where you can call in, have a cup of tea, and and just have a chat about nothing. Yeah, he's special, special man. The last question on your international career, and it's one that I'm quite interested in. You know, we've all played in those games where the first five minutes happen, and you're you're sitting there and you're genuinely thinking, "This is berserk. This is fast. It's physical, and the game is flying around you." Do you is there any matches in particular that stand out for you as the absolute flashpoint for international rugby? You know, those moments where you've it's just kicked off, and you get your you get that first break in the game and you're thinking all right this is going to be this is going to be one hell of a game yeah i i, I honestly any time you played wales you felt like that yeah. because do you know what you nearly got fooled every time by the welsh because to be fair you play with, with the, against them with their clubs or their provinces or their their regions and 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 they're they're decent players but put them in a welsh jersey and they all turn into supermen and you're looking at them kind of going remember the point you were on about there a while ago about players that you played against and you thought he's he's all right like yeah the welsh lads were incredible when they threw it on and i remember you're right the physicality even you know that anaerobic burn in your throat you're there Mm. like what's going on here are they going to put the ball up (laughs) at all you know what I mean you're looking over at him going I played against him three weeks ago and he was rubbish you know what I mean (laughs) look at him now are you like yeah and I've always kind of and then like yeah I think Wales are the kind of nation that I've always felt like that I remember you'd nearly kind of think you'd look up the clock and you'd see there's eight minutes gone and you're there this can keep going. And then you look back <laughs> up at the clock in 24 minutes and you're like, oh my God, this is still happening. You know, so, but then there's other games, like, to be fair, Italy was always really physical. Uh, like, and you never got any credit. It, it, it was an awful thing to say. You, you beat Italy by 30 points and everyone say, oh geez, you should have hammered them. And you honestly feel like you've been in 35 car crashes. The most physical mm. men of your life run over you. And, you just get no credit for it, you know. So, um, they all have uh, different things. But to answer your question, I, I, I'd say any time you played Wales, because do you know what? You always looked at the team sheet. You, you'd always fool yourself, and you'd kind of go, "That was just a one-off last year. They won't play like that." And then, honestly, eight minutes in again, you're going <gasps> sucking seagulls, looking for a new long gun. What's going on? We are delighted to say that thanks to the generosity of those at Van Vels and Smith, we are able to announce that we will be giving away a free pair of boots worth over £200 after today's episode. Whilst development of their own brand is important, the opportunity to help others is a challenge VVS relishes. Up until the age of 13, South African children play rugby barefoot. 
Poverty and suffering through parts of South Africa is no secret and means that many children aren't able to continue playing after the age of 13 as their parents simply cannot afford the necessary footwear. This season, for every pair of boots sold, Van Vels and Smith pledges to donate a pair of Broby boots to a child with the same dream as 13-year-old GJ, dreaming of a career as a professional sportsman. So in line with this sentiment, all you have to do is head over to Instagram at Van Velza and Smith, like the page and tag at Wind Your Neck In and two of your friends and that means you can be in with a chance to win a free pair of Van Velza and Smith boots. It's too good not to try. Be in with a chance to win a pair of free boots and let them sort the boots and you make the memories. And I suppose the next stage of your career is whenever you move into that Lions tour and you get to play with some of these guys. And I mean, this for me, and you might you might feel differently, but to play in a Lions tour for me would be the absolute pinnacle of any rugby player's career because not the attachment that you have to the jersey like you would with an Irish or a Munster jersey, but you have to be part of 40 to 50 or maybe even less, depending on who's picking the squad. Sir Clive took about 60, didn't he? But you have to be part of the best of the best and it's an elite group and you were lucky to go on two tours in 2005 in New Zealand and 2009 in South Africa and you got four test caps and played plenty more in the lead up to, but how did you enjoy those tours? How do you reflect on them? Yeah, I, like you said, they're the pinnacle. And I, I remember, like, I was in awe that I made the tour in 2005, you know, I think. And, and you're right, Clive did bring an awful lot of players. To be fair to him on that tour, I think he was just ahead of the curve. You know what I mean? It, like, he was probably thinking, like, if he did that, no, that would work. You know what I mean? That The amount of players and just how he, he was just probably a little bit too far ahead for everyone else. But... The, the main thing that probably was disappointed about that one is it's so important that you gel. You know what I mean? And, and th- there's the biggest difference. You nailed it straight away uh, about maybe having a few drinks with each other or socialising with each other. Compared to 05, where we didn't see each other a whole lot, we all had separate rooms. Whereas in 09, under under Ian McGeekin, I remember we got to the, the hotel and that night we all just got a text message from saying, I'm heading to the bar there, let's get a drink if any of you would like to join me. And I remember everyone just kind of was really cautious going down to the bar, mm. looking around. Kind of, this is a trick. <laughs> yeah, and he was just supping a pint. And everyone just, yeah, I'll have one, I'll have one. And it just ended up being just uh, a great fun. Look, I don't want to take away from 05 because brilliant learnings for me. I got to see... I got to see what world class do day in, day out. And I think it was so important for me because I probably thought I'd hit my ceiling, if you know what I mean. I, I was mm. around. And I, I, the, the thing that stands out to me, I remember we were staying in the Vale of Glamorgan in Wales before we, we headed off. And I said, I'll get in a sneaky extra weight session here one night before dinner. So I headed down to the gym at around six o'clock and it was it was full. It was full of all all the the Lions players and I remember I remember Danny Krukoff going well you finally joined us you know what I mean like in other words like we're actually counting that you haven't been here you know what I mean yeah. so like, I remember at that moment kind of realising that extras aren't extras to to Lions you know what I mean they, they're yeah. just constant constantly they, they're just norms you know and they just do that as as habit but what an experience what, what a brilliant you know just all of it is just fond memories and you you, you mentioned that there it's it's the, the the getting to know the different personalities the likes of the Hugo Manias, the Andy Poles you know what I mean the uh, uh, Chris Cossiters all these guys that you just mm. feel like and you, you do you build up friendships where you you actually 
learn to kind of respect people an awful lot more because you see what they do daily you know yeah, absolutely and i suppose the beauty of it is that you spend four years kicking each other's head in you spend four years you know you tied in with world cup six nations and new york kicking each other's heads in constantly whether it's club or country and then you're brought into this environment and you're find the you find the opportunity to play with these guys and you go away and unfortunately in 2005 you just play against probably one of the best New Zealand teams ever. Yeah, yeah, they were in. And like, to be fair, you, you nailed it. They were an unbelievable team. But like, if you watch back that second test, it's it's like an exhibition on how to play number 10 by Dan Carter. He was, yeah. it was just a flawless game. You know what I mean? And I know we underperformed and could have played an awful lot better. It is hard to gel teams and I don't want to give excuses, but we were thumped out the gate. They were just, they were so much uh, better than us that day. But you're right when you say it there about kind of people, like I remember Mike Phillips. We used to play against Mike Phillips for Ireland and Munster and we used to, we used to despise him like we used to hate him then we went on the Lions tour every one of us loved him like we were there filthy yeah. like what a legend you know what I mean and what a guy to, and you mentioned him there what a guy you want in your team you know and I think uh, you know to have stuff like that is kind of important as well but the Lions is such a unique special experience and it has to be respected and it has to be protected you know because like we all know the way that sport is going that you know guys are playing in more and more games but it's an honour it's an honour and I'd love if the players took the lead in nearly protecting it you know what I mean absolutely but, it can't go it can't go it has to be it has to fit somewhere in that year they're talking about rescheduling the structure of the rugby season but that Lions tour cannot cannot change from that every four year cycle yeah I, I, I'd be like you I'd put it in and I'd work back because I bet you were the same as me I remember like I remember watching the tour uh, to South Africa and the, the video living with the Lions I nearly yeah. played they're just they become your heroes and then and like we were chatting about them there Martin Johnson but I remember just remember just even seeing how we'd walk around the dressing room and nearly just be like you know like that's where you get your next role models absolutely so if you had to if you had to say best and worst rooming partners who would you hit up uh, Andy Pohl is both nearly to be fair <laughs> so like uh, we we weren't involved in the first uh, uh, test so we were kind of like the what would you call it the dirt trackers the mixed veg the you yeah. know the, the binges yeah, yeah. So to be fair to Poli, uh, he he went um, he went on a few nights. We all went out, and I remember Poli. Jenny had stayed over, and uh, Poli had uh, come back in the middle of the night. He was probably back a bit later than us, around three in the morning or whatever it was. And I remember hearing him whispering to Jenny in the bed, shaking her. Jenny, my wife, just going, Jen, Jen. I got you a Big Mac, love. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Jenny just turning to me. She's there like, like you got to remember, Andy Powell, he's about six foot four. He's about 120 kgs ripped to bits. And she's there, what will I do here, Donner? So I was like, eat, eat the Big Mac. <laughs> Fucking eat it. <laughs> yeah, but no, he was just good fun. Um, yeah, it was loads. Like, uh, to be fair, I actually thought it was quite important to room with people. Like, I'll never forget. I'll never, ever forget. I remember uh, in the Vale of Glamorgan, they told me I was rooming with Richard Hill. And I was there, oh, my good God. Like, Richard Hill, like, 
like I couldn't put him up in terms of sporting heroes for me. And I remember ringing my brothers and saying, I'm rooming with Richard Hill. Like, and they were like, is he there yet? And I was there, no, he isn't there. And I was there. I was nearly nervous to go to sleep. And he was laid down because there was traffic on the motorway. I remember him just being so sound and so nice. And then he started pu- pulling me into his group. Was So I was going for cups of teas with the likes of Matt Dawson and Lawrence Delalio. And I remember um, like a few of the Irish lads passed and they were like, what's Dunner's doing there sitting with the lads, you know what I mean? Hey, how we doing, lads? <laughs> Having the crack. So, yeah, uh, yeah there's Paulie's probably best and worst roommate, to be fair to him. Fair play. I didn't expect him to win both. So then, in to, moving forward in 2004, you get what you have summed up yourself as the opportunity of a lifetime to go and play for the Barbarians against England, which is a team coached by Dean Ryan, which we'll, we'll get to next. But you described this as yourself. You said you said this in an interview saying some of the lads were giving you a bit of stick saying you rock, you maul and you don't drink. You're the worst Baba's appointment ever. <laughs> <laughs> which it 100% was yeah yeah like when you think of it like they're all these flamboyant players that and uh, like the Babas of, of course always looked up to it and but do you know what I remember going into that game and saying oh, what do I do here do I try to grow another leg you know what I mean do I try taking yeah. a 22 dropout or a, you know what I mean having a Carlos Spencer moment and, and it's just a respect for the shirt I knew what was most important is that we needed to win and if I nailed my job there was a good chance of us doing that and someone like Randy Ranger could run in three tries which he did you know so I think for me it was a massive massive honour because you would have looked back at those you know we used to our house is rugby mad but I remember you'd look back at 101 great tries and that Baba's try against New Zealand you couldn't actually even watch it anymore because the video skips you know that like it's just yeah and to to be on the pitch and to have that experience and you're right it is it, it was it's like and I think it's actually so important now and I think it actually you should play a greater part in players rugby careers because it's a it's a retreat for rugby and I swear as soon as you do it you've done this you love rugby again don't you like yeah it just brings you back to the essence of loving it and the reason you got involved in it playing with your friends and having a ball yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I played it um, in that champ year because Dean Ryan was the most well-connected man in, in rugby. And basically someone had rang him and said, listen, we're short, we're short of hooker. Uh, no. He got called up to, to play for New Zealand because they were touring England at the time. And I got called in and I remember I went in and I was sharing with uh, Tanaka, the, the wee Japanese scrum half. And I, if I said he didn't speak a lick of English, I mean, he literally didn't speak a lick of English. <laughs> So you put me yeah. in the room with him and he's in there and I come in and he's just sitting cross-legged on his bed and he's reading this wee, this wee teeny Japanese book like where like, it's just wee symbols and all that sort of stuff. And I come in and I'm thinking like, is this actually happening? So I leave my bag off, I say a sort of broken hello to, to Tanaka and I go downstairs and the lads are all sat in the bar having pints and I'm thinking like, Lads, yeah. I'm not being. F- I'm my head. I'm gone. I'm not being yeah. funny. This is the, this is up there with one of the pinnacles in my career. Yeah. I cannot go into this game hungover. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 no. You're gonna sit down. And I remember it was your man Adam Thompson like sat me down. And he was like, just relax. This is about fun. You know me. Like I can be a bit intense sometimes. Yeah. And like he, I had a few beers. And then we went. We did the captain's run the next day. 
And the the game of touch that we warmed up with was like I was found myself just stood in the backfield just watching because these boys are throwing the most ridiculous offloads you've ever seen. And I suppose that's what the spirit of the Babas is about. It's about yeah. people expressing themselves, and that's what we as professional rugby players can sometimes forget. It nearly gets drilled out of you, doesn't it? Agreed. It, it, it really, really works. And because it, it, it goes back to the, what we were chatting about, Ted Stack, at the very start, it goes back to being fun and it goes back to love. You're just, you're playing the game you love. You, 100%, you don't know the people as well as you'd like, but you're right, the socialising side of it actually does help with that. Like, I've, I'll never forget, I, I've never seen this in a pre-match meal before, but I won't name it, but one of my teammates again, in that English game was having a bottle of beer because he was shaking so much, you know what I mean? He was trembling, he was there, I need something to settle my nerves, and went out, and he was incredible, and I was there, like, I remember I actually nearly felt bad, I was there, all these guys have been on the lash for the week, I've just been up late, but they're brilliant, and I'm playing like a bag of shite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, it, again, it sits in there with the Lions, like, it just it's just such a fundamental part of the game, and I think the supporters feel the same, it's just the the powers to be looking to try and manufacture money out of the sport. But from uh, from that experience, you meet Dean Ryan and then that ties in nicely to, I suppose, the move to Worcester Warriors where we met formally for the first time. We actually met briefly before in an Irish camp where I got called down as one of these young, I'm not sure what term they use now. I think Skittles. it's... Like, yeah, basically a Skittles. <laughs> and uh, I ended up playing in the wing that for, for a couple of days for the, for the dirties. <laughs> And uh, but the best part of that was I, I remember sitting down and I was bricking it. I was, you know, just over 20 and you came over and you made a point to send hello to me. I mean, you didn't need to, but you did. And then we went out and we trained and I was playing on the wing with Ronan O'Gara playing 10. And that for me, I know it's not a match and it doesn't count, but that <laughs> will sit as one of the most hilarious slash special moments of my career. And then I remember briefly making a small line break and, and O'Connell basically just tackling me. And I, th- I was lying on the ground thinking like, I can't believe I'm actually here. But from from then, we meet properly for the first time at Worcester. When Dean mentioned to you about coming to Worcester, what were the what were the, the thoughts, the reservations? Because I know you'd kind of set out to always try and be a one-man club at Munster. I, I knew Dean because I'd chatted to him about maybe looking at moving to Gloucester while he was there at that time. And... I, I liked him. I got on really well with him and I found him stray talking. And then I remember in, you, you mentioned that they're the Babas. You, I saw how he kind of conducted himself and set up teams and you know I, I kind of enjoyed it. And look, I, I knew I wasn't comparing Worcester like being with the Babas, but I liked how he, he left it be player-led, you know. And look, what yeah. he was chatting to me about what he was going to do with Worcester, I bought into and I, I, I think he could have done an incredible job you know I, I think he was part way down the journey of kind of you know his kind of vision for the club which I bought into I'll be honest with you you mentioned that there being a one club man I, of course he'd love that but as well you love the game as well and I knew I loved Munster so much if I stayed there I would have got bitter you know these guys that are around the environment they're not getting a run and I wouldn't want to be, but just the the animal inside you would come out and you would be resentful and not get it right. And then, like, what Dean was chatting about was the kind of 
pretty much a five-year plan that I'd be out the door at by the end of it. But at least I would have probably got to run the line, like we were saying, that I wasn't really good at with Munster, but that the likes of Mick Galway were, at the likes of Dominic Crotty, that I could have seen the, you know what I mean, walking down after tasting the European success and just being there and enjoy that, that kind of given back of it. So, so um, we, well, you, you made just under 70 appearances in three years. You were club captain for a good part of that and you won Supporters Player of the Year twice. But do you still feel a sense of disappointment that Dean left that early? Um, yeah, I, I do because, look, it was that kind of vision and plan that he had that I was there. Yeah, that, and like, I'm up for that. You know what I mean? I, I see where he's going, whereas... Then it just got, you know what I mean. It was, it was. You're you're buying into different strategies on the run as opposed to, you know. But yeah. then, I, I, like I must say, I loved it. I, I loved it. It's mad. It isn't until you look back. It just it gave me a whole new appreciation for how how tough it is. You know, like I remember we played against Connacht one time with Munster, and I remember we got a really handy decision that could have gone either way and I remember John Muldoon was whinging over it and I remember kind of looking over at him going what's he whining about like you know what I mean and Mm. it isn't until you're over that side and you realise how tough it is that every point matters every decision matters and I think it it was brilliant for me because you know it's like rugby's cruel as well and it's tough and you know like I, I must say for I, I, I look back at myself with a little bit of regret. I wish I had been, I wish I'd more lead in the pencil when I was a muster. You know what I mean? Like I was probably a little bit older and couldn't probably do what I used to do. And I wish I could have left more out there in terms of for ye and for the supporters. And But that that, that was kind of age and time as well. But I, I think your influence at Worcester was huge. I think we needed, you know, you remember we lost um, GJ that first game and we needed right. someone who would galvanise and lead the group. And between the two of you and then at the same time we had Phil Dyson there, we had, we had three unbelievably good leaders. Um, along with the younger guys like Millsy, who would have done his fair share. I think over your time at Worcester, what did you feel like you you got what was promised and expected, or or did you feel a little cut short? Um, no, like you always like to be fair, you know how it goes. Like from the first initial chat with Dean, no, it wasn't. But but then things started moving, and I was in. So you want to to do it right, and I remember. You know, the likes of Gary coming in and Ed Griffiths and they had brilliant plans and visions as well, you know, and, you know, it was probably a different plan and a different strategy. But all all you want as a, as a player is a, is an art. You know what I mean? You just want to be told we're going this way. You buy in here and you know what I mean? You do your job perfectly and we'll get there. And when when the plan kind of changes a few times, it can be really tough. And I, I suppose I wouldn't have seen myself as a leader, but I, I, I would have seeing that there's young guys there that would have you know bought in as well and there's a responsibility to your group and 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 the lads you talk out with to to make sure it's right and like that was always the drive like you wanted it i remember it was stay up year one it was top six in year two i remember that was a kind of chats around dean and and that didn't change when when aid and gary came in or ali and solomon so um even carl you know so it was the the goals kind of pretty much were the same and 
I'll be honest, they were never the drivers for me. It was being in the room, and you mentioned there, guys like Millsy, guys like Sammy Lewis, then younger guys like Ted Hill, Ollie Lawrence, seeing them come, you were there, oh my God, what players these guys are. You know what I mean? Yeah. These guys are these are freakish. You know, and yeah. like we mentioned Drico there, but you're there like, we can get Ryan Mills. You know what I mean? Good Absolutely. Football. We're winning, you know. So um, during your time, what were some of the main differences between the league styles and the and the types of rugby that you saw between that monster Pro Fourteen Magnus League uh, into what the Premiership was about? Could you sum up the kind of differences between those two? Oh, it's night and day. It, it, like you, you can sum it up because it's totally different. And look, I'll be honest with you, I never really respected the Premiership until I played in it. I uh, like I was there. You know, everyone goes on. Oh, it's such a nutritional game and. Um, every week it's so intense and you were kind of going they're making excuses for being really bad at Europe you know that way the, the, the only way I can describe it in Ireland it's like the AIL you know because it's it's proper club there's proper tradition there's proper history and of course look it, the Irish setup is different because it's a vehicle towards playing professional rugby but I love the way the Premiership is set up. And I, I swear, I disrespected it before I played in it. But after doing, honestly, I'd say about, I'd say it was about three months into it. And I was there, whoa. And you, you mentioned someone like Douse. I was there, how how has he done this? You know what I mean? Yeah. We, you, you mentioned my caps, but like, when it's week in, week out, the biggest game of the year, because that's what the Premiership is. Every game is massive. Every point matters. It just gave me a, a whole new appreciation for, for the league and what it's about and, and how tough it is. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we discussed some of the sacrifices earlier that you made and the work-life balance, and you were flying almost every week, every other week. But you did, it would be fair to say that you did enjoy your time living with Coxie. I loved it. I love it. I loved my whole time with Worcester. It, it, it's massive. Yeah, like you look back at some of it and yeah I lived with Matt Cox I miss him I'll be honest I miss him he's he's such a good scout you know he's such a good fella I like and like I live with GJ who was brilliant uh, when it, when I moved over there first he, he had my back and I think you need those kind of moments that you build relationships with people that you're there you know what I mean they become beyond teammates you know what I mean so you know I'd see someone like GJ or Matt on the pitch and I'd know that, like they're as good as brothers to me you know what I mean and I gotta make sure I bring it and uh, he, it, it was certainly entertaining living with Coxie he's wild to be fair to me absolute he's, maniac <laughs> he's good fun but you know what I love no, he, he loved to train and like I remember there was a few times I'd go up to David Lloyd's which is near the club and I'd see him in there you know he'd be jumping in the jacuzzi and I'd see him upstairs doing an extra weight session and I'd be there like here's another level again you know and then when you start moving in with it it becomes contagious and you you start training with a guy because to be fair he he's an incredible pro you know and I, I I slag him more than anyone but he he loves it and he wants to be a good uh, pro and he I, I've never been around someone maybe with the exception of Stringer Peter Stringer that look out for themselves you now both of them are doing it for different reasons. Stringer certainly isn't doing it for vanity with the head in him, whereas <laughs> Coxie is doing it to look good by a pool for 10 days a year. Coxie is 100% in it for vanity. But, I mean, <laughs> you, you mentioned Stringer. They're like, I reflect on, on your time at Worcester, and I genuinely, I had mates texting me being like... Well, are you genuine? You're sharing a change room because I remember where strings used to change as well. And I was sharing a change room with two guys who I, 
grew up watching playing on BBC in the Six Nations and that for me was berserk and I think the influence that you had at Worcester can't be under undervalued both of you in, in different ways I know Strings was a cut short a wee bit but in, in your own ways the influence was huge probably as far as I was concerned I would have liked to have seen you stay on and I know Jenny probably wouldn't want to see that <laughs> but I would like to have seen you stay on even if it was in a non-rugby capacity in terms of just being around the place for your your, your influence you know and, your, and the environment that you created was that so how, how come in reflection you've never looked to go in to to coaching or to anything like that yeah I, I, I don't think coaching's for me I'll be honest with you but you're right there there, there I do feel there is a, a role that I'd like to take up in rugby again but I, I need a little bit of space at the moment in terms of I need probably a, a generation to pass that that haven't slapped me in the nose twice so that you don't end up kind of making harsh decisions. But yeah, I, I I certainly would love to get back to, into the game in time, but not not no, not at the moment. I think there's there's parts of me that has the itch for it. Coaching isn't it for me. I'll be honest with you. I'd love to do more around kind of the management academy side of it, you know, than and anything else. But not a while. I just I. I I'll be honest, I went into the raid on the family, neither. I, I started to, like we were saying earlier on, I started to make what I thought were sacrifices, but they were just selfish decisions. And I started compounding too many of them. You know what I mean? So I started yeah. missing what, what you would think were little small things like Jake's first steps and you're there. That's a small thing. You know what I mean? Or Robin would lose a tooth. But then when you, when you put them all together, it's a lifetime of stuff, you know, and I just need to be a good dad now at the moment and get that right. But I think I'm on the the point where they'll have enough of me and they want me out pretty soon. <laughs> So what what do, what are you getting up to at the moment, Donners? What is keeping you busy? Because I know you're obviously involved heavily with RTE. Um, yeah. What what else is it that you're up to, and how are you keeping busy? Yeah, I'm I'm doing a few things to be fair, and like I'll be honest with you, and it's probably I I always kind of think of the next for load in the dressing room, and I think just chatting to you even nearly personal, I always think we think we're ready to go. You know, I thought I was ready to leave rugby, but I'll be honest, man, it's more of a kick in the the grind than you think it is. You know, and no matter how well prepared you are, it is it is a bit of a shock, and I I, I don't think you can you can be prepared enough for the exit out of it. And I think there is a massive onus on not only the player, but on the clubs and the environments and the players' unions to look out for guys. I think, if I'm being honest, I think it could be way better. I think it could be so much better for the transition out of it because it's so, so tough. You know, like whatever about employment, it's losing that one bit of identity in terms of, that's what I did every day. I was Dunnick at the rugby player and that's just gone. But the main thing, and you nailed it, like remember the crack in the dressing room there, you'd be hopping the ball, having the fun. So all of a sudden you lose 40 close friends and you know, like, and you know, it has to move on, but it, that is really tough. And I just think there could be, um, you know, a, a better side of that. I, I know the type of character I am. So I actually had to dive in and I, I started probably doing a little bit too much. And I, I was mad to find out what I love. And I, I don't know how to find what I love, but I, I certainly found out what I don't like to. And and I must say, I, I find I, I'm doing a, a radio show with 2FM called Game On every evening, kind of 6 to 8 with uh, Marie Crow and Ruby Walsh. It's 
one of our the national broadcaster and yeah. I'm really enjoying it and you know why I'm loving it because I'm learning every day I like I go in and I make a mistake and it's exactly like rugby it's the you've you've done it there now but the preparation that you've done it doesn't matter unless you perform it unless you ask the right question at the right time and you know like even stuff like active listening to people you know knowing when and it int when to interrupt and stuff like that it's just I think I love challenges I love trying to improve and get better and I honestly I'm so appreciative of, of that opportunity just for nearly not only you know, for, for profile and for putting bread on the table, but for giving me that, for giving me a new challenge, a new area to learn and improve. So I'm doing a, a bit of that and a few other things on the go. But I, I swear the main thing is trying to be a good dad. You know what I mean? Try to be back and being around and actually being somewhat useful and not getting kicked out of maths class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah as you found out this morning yeah i think i think you there's a huge there's a huge vacancy for you to move back into rugby maybe when you're ready because there's a skill set there that many people don't have but i suppose that that has to be on your terms and when you're ready but one of the things that you did do um during your playing career and this is this is kind of the last topic i, I think we should we will discuss so but it's something that I can't I can't go out without saying. You know that UNICEF ambassador role that you did is something that is incredible. How did you How did you fall into that, or was it something you pursued? Um, no, it, it, it was. I got asked. We were going on the Lions tour in two thousand and nine, and malaria was there was a, a rise in malaria, and they wanted to create awareness around it. So obviously, I'd profile, and I remember at the time. I remember seeing all of us thinking we were doing stuff for charities and being really helpful, but all we were doing really was throwing on a t-shirt and standing in in the photo, and that was yeah. that's really easy. And I think when it comes to asking people for their money, that that's actually that I think that's dishonest. You know what I mean? I think it's not good enough if you if you're asking someone to dig in, you need to know it inside out. So I remember they said, uh, "Would I be interested in after that line store in South Africa in 2009? Would I be interested in in having a look how young boys and girls fleeing Zimbabwe are integrating into South African schools and and different parts of Africa?" And I remember I stood, I stayed on for that. And I remember just straight away, like just seeing the circumstances these young children had to you know the, the mapping their journey from when they left Zimbabwe to when they make it to South Africa and the, the, the big one that stood out for me was there was no girls all the girls get lost along the journey and I remember the following year I was lucky enough to go back out into Zimbabwe and you're seeing them leaving and it's 50-50 and then you realize a year ago you saw it and there's you know where the girls get lost to you know and I think it just gave me a massive appreciation for my life and how lucky I was. And I'm, I'm massively thankful to do it. I think it's, um, and, and, and one thing I will say, Worcester were brilliant for me when I was there. Same with Munster and, and rugby has been as well for, they know you care, they know it matters to you. And they've given me space to do some of these trips at certain times. But I'd hate to, I'd hate to ask without knowing it and, and being fully invested in it and I think that's one thing I've, I've noticed that maybe in the last maybe five to six years especially with the rugby lads there's no more half-arsed asking you to get involved when people get involved with organizations and charities you know what I mean they're living it out like we had a, a, you with the acorns and even 
if we go right back, Sam Betty, what Sam Betty used to do, like I remember Betty was going out there and he was helping out uh, every morning, providing breakfast for the homeless, for, for homeless people in Worcester, you know what I mean? And like, you know, Betty, did he ever open his mouth about that? You know what I mean? It, 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 like we found out the it other way. Yeah, it certainly wasn't for any sort of social media, social media gratification. It was simply because he wanted to make a difference. And there's probably too much of that social media gratification. Look, I did a good thing going on for me. But Betty was he was the standard setter for me at Worcester. He he used to he used to regularly go into the Acorns um, hospice you know, in his own time, just pop in because, well, why wouldn't he? he? He cared. He wanted to make a difference. And I think that's evidently what that UNICEF experience was about for you. It's not about a bit part uh, gesture. It was about actually getting in there and showing that you wanted to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And you've nailed it. it, it it's about caring, you know what I mean? And I think like when, when you go to some of these situations, you see the, the conditions that young children around the world are are in through no fault of their own you know what i mean like it actually bangs home that we're actually privileged we're so lucky we're you know what i mean i know myself i you feel there if you can make a difference you should you actually have a responsibility to actually to properly help out and you nailed it you know some people might do it for social you know the being recognized and but if that helps if that helps the charity the organization fair play to you absolutely but don't do it. Don't do it half-assed. Don't throw on a T-shirt and think you're a great boy when you're you're not fully invested. And look, I I'm nowhere close to where I'd, I'd like to go with it. I'd like to to do an awful lot more for for UNICEF, and uh, hopefully I, I can in, in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think what you do is unbelievable, Dunners, and I think um, it's probably probably time that I stop pestering you and we round it up. But I just want to say a huge thank you for coming on. Um, really enjoyed the chat. Um, wishing you all the best and Jenny and the family for the future. Cheers, Nyler. Uh, best of luck. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers, mate. Firstly, a big thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen to episode 4. A big thank you to Donica for taking the time to talk to us. And finally, a big thank you to Van Belton Smith for their sponsorship on this episode. See you all soon.